0: Welcome to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from one of the Academy of Ideas lockdown debates in association with the Freiburg Institute. Moral responses to a pandemic with Susan Nyman and Frank Faredi. This discussion took place on Wednesday, the third of June, and in the chair is Jacob Reynolds.
1: So this event is one of many events that the Academy of Ideas have been organising uh, since we went into the pandemic-related lockdowns, um, and we may well, as it happens, be moving out of, uh, across some of the countries, of the world, moving out of some of those uh, lockdowns, but there is still uh, much to discuss for this event, moral responses to the pandemic. In the first instance, obviously, there are still many moral and ethical discussions uh, that are going on related to the pandemic and judgments that have to be made about uh, how to weigh up different values of safety or how to get the economy started and also as at least has begun in the UK and uh, certainly in other countries across Europe is a conversation beginning to emerge about uh, looking back and having a sort of inquiry in the in public opinion about how countries responded and different countries responded to the pandemic and what was successful and what maybe was slightly less successful Um, and indeed what has for a while been posed as a question of science or following the scientific advice. Um, we know, however, that not just is the science to some degree conflicted and full of uh, different interpretations, but also presenting it as an issue of the science also uh, obscures sometimes many moral and ethical and political judgments that are made about how to respond, um, such as whether we're interested in promoting safety Uh, at all costs or whether that's tempered by considerations of freedom, Um, whether our response to the pandemic has given enough consideration to certain groups of people such as the uh, often mentioned sort of key workers or frontline workers and whether their um, status is adequately recognised and also balancing the need to follow government advice and have authoritative judgments uh, from those in power with obviously the need for individual people to uh, engage in their own uh, autonomy and make to some degree their own decisions. So there's an awful lot for us to uh, unpack in this event. And before I introduce the speakers, I, I should note that at the Academy of Ideas, we uh, very much take seriously the need to have public debate on this wide variety of issues. Um, and as important as those issues are, they sadly, uh, they are free to view, but they don't come free for us to put on. So We are always, uh, throughout this period, we haven't furloughed ourselves. Um, We've kept working and kept trying to uh, carry on the public discussion despite the circumstances that we're in. And so we're asking if people support what we're doing, if you've been enjoying the events that we put on, please do support us uh, by going to academyofideas.org.uk slash donate. And my colleague Alistair has just put that in the chat right now. Um, So if you appreciate what we're doing, please uh, do help us out. Now, obviously, on to our speakers to get to grips with some of these moral and ethical dilemmas that we're facing, we really couldn't have uh, put together a better panel to discuss it. And I'm glad to bring these two leading intellectuals, leading European intellectuals into conversation. So I'll introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. So speaking first will be uh, Frank Frady. He's a sociologist and a social commentator. He's been writing for uh, several decades now about how Western Societies Find It Difficult to Engage with Risk and Uncertainty, and it's published on a wide variety of controversies from health and parenting to new technology. He's a regular commentator on the radio and television, both in the UK and indeed across the world. His most recent book, which I do urge you to go over to Amazon and make sure you pre-order for when that comes out on the 15th of June, is Why Borders Matter, which is subtitled Why Humanity Must Relearn the art of drawing boundaries. I'm really delighted to be joined by uh, Frank. So thank you for joining us. Then speaking second will be Susan Nyman. Uh, She's a, a, as you I'm sure already know, uh, incredibly well-regarded American moral philosopher and commentator living in Berlin, where in Berlin, she's the director of the prestigious Einstein Forum. She was born in Atlanta in Georgia, um, uh, studied and took up academic posts uh, across the world before coming to the Einstein Forum at the turn of the millennium. She's the author of many books which have been translated into a whole bunch of languages. Um, most recent ones, uh, the most recent book is uh, Learning from the Germans, Confronting Race and the Memory of Evil. But I do also recommend you several of her other books as well, such as Moral Clarity, Glide, for Grown-Up Idealists and the uh, really uh, a really pivotal book in my own uh, intellectual development, The Unity of Reason, Rereading, Kant, which is a fantastic uh, attempt and overview uh, uh, and synthesis of looking at the thought of Immanuel Kant, who many people uh, may find a sort of uh, difficult German moral philosopher and philosopher generally, but I do urge you to read the book if you've ever been confused uh, by what it all means. So um, I think that, to be honest, is quite enough introduction from me. As I say, tonight's event, uh, hosted by the Academy of Ideas, in partnership with the Freiburg Institute uh, is uh, moral responses to the pandemic this international conversation with Frank Frady and Susan Neiman. Uh without any further ado then because it's not me you're here to see but our two commentators it I'll uh, pass over to Frank Freddie who I'm muted, and I'll stick on the spotlight for video he will speak for about 10 minutes um, and then Susan will uh, offer her thoughts as well again for about 10 minutes I will try and keep them to time so that we have plenty of opportunity to open up uh, for questions and contributions from the floor, because this, as we say, is a a very much a public conversation. So uh, I'll hand over to Frank, and then we'll hear from Susan, but Frank,
2: over to you. Uh, Thank you very much, and uh, thanks for inviting me for this uh, potentially very interesting discussion. When I was thinking about the uh, moral response to the panic, to the pandemic, one of the things that really struck me is that there's a danger of trivializing the meaning of of the moral and of morality, mainly because since we're living in the middle of an extraordinary situation, almost every decision or choice that people make seems to be endowed with the the word, it's a moral choice. So very messy trade-offs that are being made every day in hospitals and in, uh, by, by health providers throughout the world are all of a sudden seen as constituting an ethical or a moral dilemma. Whereas in fact what we're talking about are really elements of life that have been around for uh, 50 or 60 years, which is really about the rationing of health services. It's really about uh, triage in some, some situations. It's really about using common sense in specific kind of context. And I, I think sometimes there's a danger of, of uh, undying decisions which are essentially very practical and very pragmatic with uh, the word ethical or with morals. So I'm not going to go into that except to perhaps suggest that as far as I'm concerned, the very idea of a trade-off, which has uh, been very important in the current discussion, I find is very alien to my thinking. Because in the real world, the the tension of everyday life between, uh, for example, taking seriously your health or your safety or your life, whilst at the same time being concerned about the future of social and economic life. It's not a trade-off. They're indissolubly linked. And in many respects, uh, uh, life itself is not something that is merely a health issue. It's not something that's to do with the quality of medical care. It's not something to do with the health service, life itself is much broader than that, and encompass, uh, encompasses our intimate existence, our social life, our friendship, our autonomy, as well as the, as very importantly, the world of work. Because in many respects, it's through our work that we often find uh, that we gain, that we express what we are about, and we give meaning to our experience. Over the years, I've done quite a lot of research and study on, on, the, on disasters and on the way we experience catastrophes. It's been one of, my, one of the topics that I've been writing about for about 20 years. And I think it is interesting that, of course, when you look at catastrophes and disasters like the current pandemic, it is the case that they constitute a very major moral challenge uh, in, because they call into question values and meanings. And in fact, if you want to define what a catastrophe and what a disaster is, it's very often not just simply to do with the physical threats, the physical dangers that human beings experience. Very often, a catastrophe, a real catastrophe, raises a very important uh, philosophical and moral question, which is, what does it mean? You know, what do we, what is, what's the meaning? of this unexpected earthquake? What is the meaning of this flood that seems to encompass all aspects of our life? And throughout human history people struggled to give meaning, to find some kind of a way of, of giving a moral connotation to disasters and that is why in English language they were, they were historically defined as acts of God, that somehow what was going on uh, had to do with uh, gods or divine retribution it was a signal that was communicated by god it often conveyed the uh, the meaning that it it was a payback for some kind of sin or transgression that human beings uh, kind of committed and i think what's interesting is that even today when we live in more secular times and even today when you know we talk about disasters as acts of nature and more sometimes increasingly we talk about them as a man-made disaster. Nevertheless, even today, uh, an event like a pandemic or any other disaster is always invested with some kind of meaning, some kind of hidden meaning. In other words, a disaster, a pandemic, is very rarely perceived as just an accident, just happened to happen. It's often uh, endowed with a feeling that is a profound moral significance that kind of lies behind this. Now, when I look at the the way that issues are discussed today, one of the important and most interesting um, uh, sort of conclusions that I draw, and something that I'm struggling with, is that in many respects, what we're seeing in this current pandemic is that as a result of a variety of historical developments, the, the usual conventional discussion of moral norms has been trumped by a discussion of health. Or argue, arguably, morality and health has become intertwined to the point at which norma, what used to be seen as being normativity has become entirely medicalized. And what we tend to hear about are issues that are, 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 are to do with health. So the well, first proposition I want to make is that questions that had been classically dealt with through the grammar of morality have become increasingly more and more medicalized, particularly in the uh, Anglo American world, where, as you all know, over the decades there's been an expansive definition of health to the point at which disease uh, or, and health is not no longer about the absence of disease, it's really about this uh, diffuse kind of sense of well being. Important uh, uh, point that emerges out of this is that in these conditions, safety has become a commanding norm. If there's a foundational value that everybody seems to sign up to, it is that of safety. That's important to realize that safety, in the way that we're discussing it today, is very, very different than the way that philosophy, and for that matter, theology, has engaged with this in the past. For example, Aristotle understood that harms could not be abolished and argued that moral virtues, particularly courage, could serve as a medium for coming to terms with our fears about our security and our safety. And so from an Aristotelian perspective, the aspiration of safety was very much a question of necessity rather than as an idealized virtue. Today, safety is an idealized virtue and very often Uh, It becomes not just simply uh, a kind of a a signal that we we don't want to be subject to harm. We want to protect ourselves and protect our health. It is as if safety has become this expansive norm that that intrudes into all dimensions of our life. And in the English language, we talk about safe sex, safe schools, safe spaces, safe everything. It is something that almost literally overwhelm us in terms of the way that we, uh, we see the world today. Now, it seems to me that once uh, safety has become an idealized virtue, then morality itself, and, and we see this in this pandemic, uh, acquires a very different uh, meaning. You see, morality in its normative sense refers to a code of conduct or a web of meaning that is broadly acceptable to society. And it seems to me that this web of meaning is relatively weak at the moment. And it was very weak to begin with, even before the catastrophe. And that's why we find that in responding to the catastrophe, the way we're responding to it is is quite unique. The history shows that every time there's a catastrophe, societies tend to come together. Whenever there's a disaster, you see great manifestations of solidarity, used to be called the blitz spirit in England occurring. The same thing happened when Hamburg was bombed in Germany. The same thing happened when Hiroshima was bombed. Whenever there's a big catastrophe, society comes together as if they are one and, and, and seek to aid and assist one another. In this pandemic, what's very interesting is that in many, many places, although you have solidarity at the local level, although people come together and help their neighbors and help one another, by and large there's a conspicuous sense of polarization that has kicked in in many, many parts of the world. You see that particularly in the United States, but you see that in Britain as well. You see a situation where whether or not you wear a mask becomes a moral statement, rather a pragmatic one, in the way that it is seen. And as a result of that, what has occurred is that in this catastrophe, in this disaster, in this pandemic that we're experiencing at the moment, we are struggling not only to give meaning to our experiences, something that all of us can sign up to. We're kind of hiding behind public health to the point at which the usual forms of solidarity uh, that have a very important therapeutic function in most disastrous events becomes, to some extent, undermined. And I fear that one of the consequences of of this kind of moral illiteracy that has kicked in uh, where people pretend have uh, this performance of solidarity, now and again by clapping their hands, this kind of ritualistic form of solidarity, which actually uh, has got no real, significant, uh, durable uh, sort of content, uh, is going to create a situation where after the pandemic, the polarization and this atomized reaction that we're having uh, to the pandemic is going to continue and acquire. A, a much more tangible, durable shape. So the point I want to end on is very simple. We are human beings, and thankfully, because our humanity always needs a scope for its expression, we are still able to find these points of contact with our neighbors, with our immediate community, when we see somebody who's helpless. We're still doing that, but as as a society, I don't think that we've got a language, a moral grammar of meaning, to which we can give meaning to that. And I think that will have a fairly regressive, fragmentary uh, sort of expression in the months ahead. And it seems to me that, as grown-up mature adults, we have an obligation to confront this question and struggle and find ways and means of getting away from this medical ask from morality to another one that, give, uh, that could give a much more clearer meaning to solidarity and human experience. Thank you
1: very much, Frank. Um, thanks for opening with those uh, those very thoughtful remarks. Um, very helpful to get a uh, grip on the current moment. I'm going to hand over then um, to uh, Susan. Um, again, nobody wants to hear from me. I'm sure much more interesting to hear from Susan. So uh, Susan, I, I hope you're unmuted and all is well and I know that your camera video is working and whatnot. So over, over to you.
0: Um, so thank you. I. Um... I agree with a lot of what Frank just said, and I myself have been arguing for a return to moral language and um, you know, a change in a culture that is embarrassed by appeal to norms and motives that are not self-interest for a long, long time. Uh, I'm just a little nervous about, uh, and Frank, you didn't say enough for me to be entirely sure, so we can discuss this later, um, for the claims that Uh, concern for health has overtaken moral norms. I see it a bit differently. I should say that I am so not a risk averse person that it was in my 40s when I realized that people have different levels of risk. So my life has not been based on uh, safety and in any way whatsoever. And when the pandemic began, I was somewhat skeptical about how careful one was supposed to be. I am in Berlin, which has done relatively well. Uh, But when an old friend of mine uh, went into um, uh, emergency care, where he has been intubated, God forbid, for two months. I mean, the question is what will happen to him Where he, when he comes out. Uh, I took it rather differently. This is somebody who's a little bit older than I am, but he is one of the most alive and vital people I've ever met. Um, I, In the 35 years we've known each other, I've never heard of his having a cold. So um, I, I think when we talk about the science being conflicted, science is being science, that is, we have been confronted with a new disease that people know very little about, which is why um, a lot of the information keeps changing. And I am made nervous by the calls, uh, you know, to forget about uh, health concerns and the calls that people say, I must say, most of the people who are demanding freedom and protesting against uh, pandemic measures are people on the wrong side of um, any view that I can find politically acceptable. Most of them. I, I mean, I know there. I know there are um, uh, exceptions, and I, uh, from what I understand about Frank's work, Frank is an exception. But there are two points that I uh, want to make um general philosophical points i have also thought a lot about people's urge to find meaning in disaster my book evil in modern thought was all about that and about the ways in which until the lisbon earthquake of 1755 evils were classified as natural or moral evils and there was a very simple uh metric for giving meaning to natural evils, that is plagues and uh, earthquakes and um, uh, things like that. Namely, uh, you sinned. And so if you sinned, God had so constructed the world that you were going to suffer. And it was it's a view that goes back to the book of Job or Job's friends. And it's a view that the Enlightenment tried to do away with um, by splitting natural and moral evils and calling what used to be natural evils simply disasters or catastrophes without meaning. Um, but as Frank rightly uh, pointed out, um, there's a very natural human urge to invest tragedies with some kind of meaning. Um, it feels better even to blame yourself for something horrible that happens than uh, than. To call it absolutely accidental, contingent, and meaningless. I think what we've seen in the last, oh, 10 years or so is a way in which the categories of natural and moral evil have come together again precisely because of our capacity to uh, drastically affect nature. That's the meaning of the word Anthropocene. And I know that there are lots of voices claiming that, um, well, it's not God who's punishing us, but it's Mother Nature who's punishing us for, you know, filling the seas with plastic and the skies with poison. I think it's an understandable uh, metaphor, but it's a wrong one. I think we need to think politically um, about climate change. Uh, as about everything else, and that is um, the main point that I'd like to make. When the pandemic first started, I was struck and rather amazed by the number of people who, you know, like me, take on this role of being public intellectual and immediately came with ideas or pieces or interviews or essays Uh, predicting what the pandemic was going to bring. And I felt absolutely speechless. (laughs) How are these guys, uh, (coughs) excuse me, some of these guys, how are these guys so certain that they can simply scribble something off? I do now, after some reflection, have quite a lot to say, but it's not in the matter of prediction at all because I think this is an an entirely new situation. Yes, history has been full of plagues, but we have never been as connected with each other as we are now. We've never been as aware of what was going on in the rest of the world. It's never been harder to shut ourselves off. So for all kinds of reasons, what I would like to argue for is that we embrace the absolute uncertainty of this situation and think big about what our possibilities are for a post-corona world. And um, Frank spoke about the um, lack of solidarity on a large scale. Actually, the one thing I started doing um, practically when uh, when the pandemic began was to collect in a file Uh, what I called Good Corona News is the name of the file. And coming up with really very extraordinary uh, examples of solidarity and it's not about people clapping. Um, It's about people donating time, energy, money, all over the world. Um, changing of cultures, it just so happens that I, I have a younger colleague who spent her life uh, researching Thailand. She's a Thai- this is just one of, of 150 examples I could give you. Um, in Thailand, philanthropy uh, is very much run by the temples and it's very much dependent on um, being acknowledged by name for whatever gift you give. And for the first time ever they've put up something called I think they're called happy boxes and uh, where people can give anonymous donations of food and medical supplies and other people can take them anon- anonymously and it's a completely different uh, it's a completely different culture. Sure. Um, Frank, you you talked about uh, atomism in the United States. The reason why there's atomism in the United States is that we have no functioning federal government. Uh, The only authorities that are functioning are the local authorities and God bless them. Many of them have been working very hard to combat the disastrous message, lack of message or uh, malevolent message coming coming from the White House. But again, within the the United States, but also everywhere I have been looking, um, there has been a very much a new tone. Uh, of solidarity. I know this is something that Frank uh, wrote a bit about towards the end of his, I guess this is not your new book, your last new book, How, how Fear Works, and I very much liked your discussion of heroism and how we have um, turned away from a heroic culture. It's something that I've also written about and I'm writing about. Uh, you have tones since the pandemic began uh, and discussions of heroism that people would have been embarrassed three months ago to use. And you have that um, all over Africa, you have it in lots of places. And my thought, or rather my plea, is that we take this moment to undermine something that I've called the tyranny of self-interest, something that built up um, over the 20th century, it wasn't really present in the 19th. The idea that all human action is motivated by, um, you know, the most basic forms of self-interest. 19th century writers talked about honor, talked about heroism. Of course, they were all partic- you know, perfectly uh, clear about the fact that people's motives are mixed. I mean, all you need to do is read George Eliot or or, or Tolstoy to see that, people before the 20th century had a very complicated idea of uh, human motivation but since the 20th century we have for from an incredible variety of influences uh, from the growth of advertising from uh, um, Cold War rationality uh, conceptions of rationality from Um, economics. Um, uh, Most recently, and in many ways, I think most dangerously, from uh, so-called evolutionary psychology, psychology, we are blasted with messages from the entire culture that the real explanation of human behavior is what you do to consolidate your own wealth and power, and everything else is just bullshit or uh, perhaps self-deception. And I think what the coronavirus has shown is that this contrast between self-interest and interest in the common good collapses. The whole, and you see this, you know, in a moment of, uh, you know, the whole idea of wearing masks. The masks, unless you have a very good one. Uh, don't protect you from getting the virus. But if everyone wears a mask, you protect each other. Listen, I don't like wearing masks. Nobody likes wearing masks. It's quite odd, Um, you know, trying to negotiate, um, you know, encounters on the street or in the grocery store. Um, But it seems to be something that we ought to get used to for a while. Um, The other thing, Uh, that I'm hoping will change, particularly in the United States where I come from, is the disastrous treatment of essential workers. What Europeans often don't know uh, about the American system is not only do we not have universal health insurance, we don't have sick leave. At least 40% of the population has none whatsoever and uh even those who have something um it's usually limited to five days a year so for five days a year you are allowed to be sick without getting fired from your job if you have a particularly generous employer and you've got you know god knows what uh, coronavirus or something else you can um you know he'll let you keep your job but he certainly won't pay you what this means is and Susan.
1: Can I just uh, ask you to end on this point, if that's all right, and, and wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: just finishing. Um. Sorry. Um. What this means, of course, is that uh, the people who are uh, growing, packing, preparing, selling your food, uh, taking out your trash, etc., etc., uh, could, you know be a source of, of pandemic, and I am truly hoping that um, you know people will recognize not as an act of generosity but as an act of self-interest um, that we pay support and honor um, those people who are keeping the world turning
1: great thank you thank you so much uh, Susan and for those excellent reflections um, In the spirit of Academy of Ideas events, I now very much want to come straight out to the audience. If you'd like to get involved, um, you'll see, uh, there are many people I can see already want to speak, but if you would like to, uh, the best way to do that is to move your mouse down to the bottom of your screen where you'll see a little button that says participants. Um, You should click on that. And then uh, a little list of everyone that's here will appear, and there'll also be a button there that says "Raise Hand," which will allow you to raise a virtual blue hand, and your name will shoot to the top of my screen, so I'll be able to take you in. I can see already, given that we're now uh, several months into a pandemic lockdown, that has meant everybody using Zoom, that everybody's familiar with this, which is which is great. So I I do want to come out, but uh, very quickly first, uh, just because Susan provided me such an excellent opportunity in talking about the uh, effects of psychology and of advertising in her opening remarks, I want to just draw your attention to an event that I, in my role at a charity called the BOI Charity, um, we're running an event uh, called the Academy, and this year we're running it online. It's usually a residential uh, weekend, but this year we're running it online in a short day of lectures and discussions, and the theme this year is psychology and democracy. It's on the 20th of June, um, where we'll be hoping to get to grips with the emergence of and the influence of psychology um, which is obviously this big intellectual trend that's been influencing responses to the pandemic. You can find out more about that by going to uh, theboi.co.uk slash academy2020. Um, We'll post some information in the chat about how to get there, but I do hope to see you there. But that's um, enough of my cheeky plug. I'll I'll come out to the audience. Um, I'll ask everyone, we've noticed obviously in Zoom and maybe people are eager to speak that Some people tend to maybe speak for longer than they would in a public meeting. So I will ask everybody just to keep things as brief as they can be so that we can make sure we get everyone in so I can already see uh, so many people um, uh, with their hands up. So the first person um, is Josephine Hase. I'm going to unmute you um, and I'll put you on spotlight video so that we can see you. So uh, Josephine, once you've unmuted yourself, over to you.
3: Um, I just wanted to say that I was really interested when Susan said that people want to do something because I think that's really true and I think the social reaction has been I want to do something. I think there were two things that were already trends um, as a school teacher that I'd noticed which was there's already medicalised behaviour in school so any behaviour of children is medicalised. Also, technocracy exists. So a lot of the um, child protection is rules that don't actually solve problems. Um, When the pandemic happened, everyone said, what can we do? And we were told, stay at home. So um, what what was a social reaction was um, then translated to a very passive um, thing to do. And then we were alienated. So people have reacted in different ways. I've actually been working, so I've gone into school. So I'm, I'm really not scared at all. And sometimes I find the things we do are a bit strange, but I'm part of, I've been part of society, so I've kind of been socialised. Some people are really scared, but they're really scared of giving it to other people rather than scared for themselves. Some mm-hmm. people are talking about the climate it being a good thing and birds are coming back. But what scares me as a result of this is people are comforted by technocracy and I worry that technocracy itself becomes a morally good thing Um, and um, that I worry is um, uh, something that really narrows morality down even further.
1: Thanks, Josephine. Thank you very much for that, um, I, especially to Frank and Susan. I'll get a range of contributions um, and then we'll come back in for some reflections. We obviously, we won't be able to answer each question individually, but I do want to create the feeling of a public discussion. So I'll head over to John Holbrook. I'm putting you on I'm um, unmuting you. And once you're unmuted, please do go ahead.
4: Um, so my question is, is morality in society weak? Or is it the case that morality in society is now fractured? In the sense that there's no society has no ability to cohere people around an agreed set of moral values. Um, I, I would suggest that it's not the case that morality is weak, because I don't think anyone works without a moral framework. But I won't say anyone, because I think people on the margins of society probably do. But most people act in accordance with what they believe to be. A moral framework. The difficulty, I think, is that society can no longer agree on, on, on a moral framework. In fact, it's quite, it's quite clearly fracturing, and I would suggest it's fracturing between those who are focused very much on, on the individual, which means they are susceptible to fears about safety and their own personal security. So you've got people on, on that side of the scale. And then you've got people who are able to resist those fears by a bit like Josephine, our last contributor, is able to focus more on the community. You know, the importance of seeing family, seeing friends, actually going to work, seeing the importance of the economy and keeping the economy and society going. Um, But that's a major fracture that you see coming into play in so many different issues these days, and oh, perhaps not just seeing where the culture war is taking us, which is the complete inability of society to, to be coherent. You know, we're no longer just disagreeing over political issues or economic issues, but now society is is fundamentally disagreeing over the cement which is supposed to hold us together, namely the, the very existence of a moral framework. It's not that people don't have moral frameworks, it's just that they have different moral frameworks.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, thanks for that John. Um, I'll head over to Patrick uh, Schumacher now. So uh, I'll ask you to unmute and then over to you.
5: I just want to pick up on this notion from Frank uh, that moral issues are getting medicalized and I agree this with that uh, and uh, not a great um, uh, tendency. In particular, I'm worried about the proliferation of uh, the use of mental health to make excuses and to also victim mice people or this kind of idea of victimhood through mental health and everything becomes uh, uh, clouded in this medicalized way and and, and there's a lack of individual responsibility uh, taking a stance. But at the same time, I want to say that uh, health and safety is becoming more and more important in most people's life. I understand that. uh, That it becomes a commanding norm, if you like, in every individual's life. And that is simply a function, in my view, of the much increased prosperity, at least of let's say this strata of the advanced societies, which are the opinion leaders, let's say um, educated people with a lot of with, with an understanding and prospect of living into the 80s and 90s, and 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 understanding also history. So there would be a, a huge, um, let's say, uh, attention would have to be paid on uh, uh, health and safety, but also in, in includes, of course. Uh, Uh, diets and safe sex perhaps and many other aspects and of course that is the leading ideology it hasn't arrived in the in the habits and ways of life of of all straight off course but I would make a distinction between that uh, and uh, this idea of uh, safe spaces so one could subscribe to like I do to valuing health and safety in terms of physical health uh, but but, uh, and and not being uh, becoming kind of a victim of potential Um, um, uh, let's say discursive threats, and uh, I reject safe spaces. So I just want to put that forward. And this idea of uh, we're no longer living in this heroic culture is maybe uh, connected with that in terms of not putting one's life on the line, putting one's health on the line, because we're also no longer in this stratum, at least all of us here joining this kind of uh, uh, conversation, we are not tied to particular a group, uh, a nation or a family or some kind of a g- grouping, we're not existentially dependent on them. We see a larger cosmopolitan world and if, we, if I put my life on the line for a fight, an independence fight here or revolution there, uh, uh, I know that these countries and, and causes and, and groupings 10, 20, 30, 40 years will have long disappeared and be forgotten. I will still be around maybe in a different corner of the world. So that whole heroism, I think, is, could still be there, spending energy and time. And, uh, and talk personally, I put my wealth on a line many, many times. And I'm not risk averse at all. But I make sure that I, I don't want to be uh, or, you know, ambushed in a, in a, in a looting uh, scenario. which I, and, and, and this kind of physical violence, I think, is something which, for a, a certain strain of society, is disappearing and should be disappearing. and there for health and safety become also incredibly important and valuable.
1: Okay, thanks Patrick. Um, there's already obviously a huge amount on the table, but given the number of people to, to get through, I, I will take two more people before getting uh, Frank and Susan in to offer some thoughts. So next up is uh, Noah, so over to you.
6: Hello there, good evening everyone, and thank you for your contributions, Frank and Susan. Um, I just wanted to raise a few quick points. Um, firstly, to what extent do you think our moral response has been to put um, morals to one side? For example, individuals associating freely and elections taking place were seen as moral absolutes that would happen with no ifs, no buts, they'd always take place. And um, yet systems have not only um, been willing to you know, have those restrictions in place, but have also actively supported them. Um, secondly, I wonder to what extent the panellists thought our moral response has just been um, framed by individuals reinforcing their existing ideology. So even though this is a great simplification, those on the left supporting more state intervention, those on the right um, using the pandemic as an, as an excuse to support you know, the free market and opening up um, the private sector. Um, and finally, I wonder to what extent our response has been framed by language of panic and fear and the idea, that, you know, there is no alternative to a certain scenario, uh, which has really led, in my, in my view, to the decline of nuance in dealing with the uh, pandemic. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, uh, Noah. That's that's great. And very succinctly put, which uh, to get through this, everyone else will have to take a leaf out of Noah's book. So I'll, I'll go over to uh, Daniel now, who I'm going to spotlight, and then we will come back to Frank and Susan. Uh,
7: yeah, I've just got a question for Susan, although of course Frank might want to comment as well, which is what you said about the tyranny of self-interest.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: And presumably the flip side of that is altruism as the basis for morality, because I mean, I, I fully accept what you said that in real life, most people are quite complicated. So, one day they might be self interested, the next day they might be altruistic. But I'm becoming more and more suspicious of those people who talk about themselves as if they're above self interest. Because it seems to me those people who see themselves as purely altruistic are often very willing to impose their views and uh, the way they see things on other people. It seems to me that altruism can also be very problematic. It's not just
1: self-interest is problematic. Thanks, Daniel. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to Frank first, uh, and then we'll hear from Susan. Just a, a couple of quick thoughts. As I say, there's lots to get through, and lots of hands to get through, but um, we'll try and keep this rolling as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to answer what Patrick had said earlier on, the point that's important about safety is that historically, it was seen as a question of necessity rather than a, as an idealized virtue. And that's that seems to me an important separation. Obviously, we all want to be safe and we all want to be secure and want to be healthy, but that's got very little to do with morality. That's got to do with necessity. Uh, and what I'm worried about is that safety has moved from the realm of necessity into this uh, kind of value, this uh, unspoken value that we all embrace as having an importance in a, of itself. And that, by the way, is also related to some of the earlier points I was making about the intersection between health and and morality. Uh, I'll come back in a second, but the important point about morality is it's not a question of it being weak or fractured. Uh, I think John is right in some of his statements. I think the real problem that we're confronted with is that society has been discouraged from thinking morally. That at the universities where I work, If you use the language of morality, you are automatically dismissed as an idiot, as somebody who cannot talk uh, in the language of everyday life. And that's not an accident, because I think that what has happened is that over the decades, uh, moral philosophy has been gradually displaced by other disciplines. I think there's some very interesting studies that have been carried out, which shows you just how that was done in a very systematically, particularly in the United States, where the social sciences displace the humanities. Nothing wrong with the social sciences, I'm a sociologist, but at the same time, philosophy, particularly, has got a very legitimate and very important role to play in this. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, I just written an article about this. When the World Health Organization was formed, its first founder, Chisholm, basically argued it's very important that we get away from morality. We must stop teaching uh, children what is right and what is wrong. They must learn to to learn about right and wrong themselves. Morality kills life. It's bad for health. We need to somehow move away from these kind of classical legacies of, of moral norms, the old Kantian ideas about personal autonomy. We need to get away from uh, the Aristotelian ideas of human flourishing, and somehow we must embark on this new journey where we no longer speak about uh, the use the language of the past, but rather we respond to new kind of experiences. And it seems to me that once you, you go down that road, that what also follows, and this is to me the biggest tragedy, is you are no longer allowed to make moral judgments. That moral judgments are increasingly seen Rather than as a desirable way of communicating with each other as grown ups, moral judgments are pathologized, which is why in the United States, in particular, but also in Britain and many European countries, non judgmentalism, not judging people, is seen as inherently virtuous. Uh, We use the word judgy in the United States to condemn people who still uh, decide to make moral judgments, not understanding that without moral judgment, without the capacity to judge, there cannot be a living morality uh, that, that really means something to, to kind of society, nor can we as human beings develop connections with each other unless we're prepared to judge one another. I think it seems to me that that's what the problem is. It's not that individuals have become less moral. It's rather that we have become so estranged from the language of morality. We so much encourage people not to judge that when we face with the important choices thrown up uh, in the pandemic, we kind of hide behind the experts. You know, nothing wrong with expertise, but experts are not moral philosophers. They're not moral gods. They are simply able to provide you with evidence and with facts, which still does not relieve us of the burden of making some very important judgments.
1: Thanks, uh, Frank. Over to Susan.
0: Uh, well, what Frank said was just music to my ears. I go ballistic when people, uh, tell, don't be judgmental. Um, we need to make judgments. It's a fundamental act of thinking, and it's certainly a fundamental act of moral thinking. Uh, and I also thoroughly agree that people haven't become less moral, but they have become embarrassed uh, to speak in moral terms. Um, somebody, I think it was Daniel, said, um, you know, people can behave horribly and, and claim to be behaving altruistically. Of course they can. We know that. Um, and I'm not even saying that, that altruism is the, is the basis of morality. I'm actually more of a Kantian. Um, and I think the basis of morality is something like a sense of justice. The interesting thing uh, that we've seen from empirical science, it, but actually Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, <laughs> 250 years ago, also observed it, animals, higher animals, uh, feel compassion and pity for uh, f- for not only for other members of their species but even for other species. Look at the work of Franz de Waal, the Dutch primatologist. But there's also been um, amazing work on elephants and other things. the The point is, a basic response of compassion and pity um, is really something that we all feel. The question is, what we do with it. The other thing someone said at the beginning, I don't remember now whom, um, what we, we don't have, we have more disagreement on moral questions. That has never been my experience when it comes to actual concrete examples. Uh, People spend lots and lots of time talking about, oh, there are no moral judgments, or, you know, it's impossible to find a universal standard. And, you know, we waste a lot of time about that. We talk about particular cases. um, By and large, there are, um, there are uh, exceptions, of course. Um, But by and large, people agree. Two more brief points um, about Um, someone was talking about, you know, restricting certain moral ideas for, uh, like, uh, the freedom of movement for other goals. Look, um, you know, their priorities. Um, The English people I know have been really very good, more than uh, other people I know as a nation, of voluntarily restricting travel, or at least airplane travel, um, in order to contribute to saving the climate. There are just times when we have to give stuff up for a greater good that you know uh, otherwise we might have enjoyed. And that leads to the last point, that I think um, I worry about the safety of others. And many of the people I know who are being quite cautious, this was mentioned also before, are being cautious on behalf of other people, I think we need to remember that uh, in the US, black and brown people have been getting the virus at three times the rate of white people. And I think the statistics aren't quite that bad in the UK, but um, there's, there's also an incident. So if we care, about the essential workers. If we care about people who are less privileged than we are, we need to think about their safety too.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Susan. Right, so in the course of that, there's a huge number of uh, people who have emerged who, who want to speak, which is great because that's what having a public conversation is all about. Um, I'll start with Richard Ings, but I will make a plea to everyone on to sort of take in the needs of, uh, of the community here, as it were, and uh, try and limit yourselves a little bit, if you can, to some pithy remarks so that we can indeed get everyone in. But um, over to Richard, I'll put you on spotlight. Um, Thanks. Yeah, yeah. great.
9: Um, uh, at the risk of ruffling feathers, um, that statement just there, we have to give up things for the greater good. And um, after what Frank said, I think um, we may once have been non-judgy and non-morally um, uh, uh, believing we're better than other people. But I think that's back, 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 baby. Um, I really do think that we're in a, a new age of a new, uh, new moralism and the kind of whole uh, relativism of the past is old news. That wasn't actually the question that I was going to ask because what I'm really intrigued by is the, is the stuff to do with health. Um, and, and I'm thinking about health as a public virtue, and how far that seems to go back. And what the you know, while it feels instinctively that things are different nowadays, at the same time, you know, public health campaigns uh, in America during Prohibition, uh, during Nazi Germany. Uh, anti-smoking campaigns of the 70s, AIDS uh, campaigns of the 80s, it feels like all those uh, chickens are coming home to roost now. And that the idea of, uh, you know, public uh, health, public morality, not just private health and private health concerns, this is the basis for a a new form of morality. And I just want to say anecdotally that I seem to, I heard that there were Islamists uh, online um, uh, laughing at us at the fact that we're all wearing masks now. Uh, when we were complaining about people wearing veils. Isn't the, isn't the mask our, ve- our, our uh, um, a secular veil? That's my question.
1: Thanks very much. Um, I'll move swiftly uh, over to Kerry. Uh,
10: Thank you very much, uh, Susan and Frank, that, for excellent introductions. Quick questions. Is that, it relates to things that a couple of people have raised. Is there a relationship between the lack of trust in us as individuals, and our ability to act autonomously and make judgments which are supportive of our se- fellow citizens and the authoritarian measures we've seen where one rule must affect all and the demeaning of a moral compass that you refer to, Frank. What, what's the relationship there? I think Josephine in the chat has said, you know, ha- has this sort of moral decline, lack of moral collective values or moral framework, as John puts it, meant we look to these rules and in that regard there does seem to be judgment although a quite reactionary curtain twitching as we'd call it in the uk type where people report on other people for not towing uh not supporting the rules however irrational many of the rules are secondly quickly susan you referred i think briefly to the idea of the kind of mother nature vendetta type idea. And uh, I just wondered how far you think other conspiracies, theories are able to emerge in this particular sort of um, anti-moral or medicalised uh, climate. And the idea, obviously, of things being better because of lockdown for us or you know, fewer cars, blah, blah, blah. I am worried about as being uh, profoundly anti-human consequence very quickly big question maybe you can't deal with it is there anything from what you're discussing now that helps us understand the riots in the states in terms of what seems to be the resurrection of collective guilt or white people are guilty and victim culture and lastly is the connotation essential worker which I don't find that positive, at all positive.
1: Okay, thanks, Kerry. I'm going to move swiftly over to uh, Kevin.
11: Thanks very much for your contributions. I just have, first of all, what Kerry just said uh, about ethics. I, I have looked at, at the beginnings of, of this sort of new wave of ethics coming in in the 70s, and I think there's a big difference then. That's when it seems to be uh, welded up to, to uh, medicine in a big way. It's around 1970. You can almost date it uh, pretty, pretty precisely. My question is, um, is the coronavirus actually changing our moral landscape? Because um, in issues that I look at, for instance, in assisted dying, it it completely uh, stopped assisted dying in the Netherlands. And uh, just simply by focusing uh, attention on life and all of these very, very necessary euthanasia clinics just suddenly fold in. And I wonder whether that has, I'm not sure how that's going to pan out, but it seems to be also doing so other, um, other areas. So for instance, in the interest, like vaccination, I would say, uh, most people would have been against compulsory vaccination. I'm not sure I still am. Um, If there's medical imperatives, uh, it might change the way we look at individualism.
1: Thanks, uh, Kevin. I'm going to go over to Nancy. Um, somebody in the chat make uh, rightly pointing out we are going to have to try and speed up these contributions if we're going to get everyone in. So uh, over to over to you, uh, Nancy.
8: I think the problem that we have is that uh, to a greater or lesser extent, um, every generation that has been raised since the 70s has a slightly different view of what it means to be human uh, than anything that has con- that has gone before. Um, I don't have better words for this, but I think the old way of looking at, um, uh, at being human and humanity was, uh, as being something deeply understanding yourself as being part of something bigger t- than yourself. Uh, and meaning was derived f- through the obligation to that bigger Uh, that bigger entity. And I think what's happened is that we now have a much more um, self-centered, therapeutic understanding of what it means to be human, which limits everything. Um, Because even if you understand right and wrong, it's always uh, relative to the individual person, the individual self. Um, And I think that is why... Um, health has become so important, um, is because uh, it's because you, you're really limiting the cur- people's horizons to uh, to one life, to oneself, uh, to one's uh, relationships uh, with other people in a di- in a much more direct and kind of uh, personal way, um, and I think that. Can, we, is, is it
1: possible? Can I ask you if yeah. we just leave it there, Nancy, just because... Um, yes, I I'm happy to leave it there. there. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, uh, over to Alka.
12: I've got a question. I'd like to probe both Frank and Susan a bit more on what I, I picked out as their sort of suggestions for a way forward, um, and, and really, Susan, so when you were talking about the Anthropocene, you pointed out that it was understandable, but insufficient, and that we needed something political. And Frank, you seem to be posing um, a way at uh, uh, the need for a new moral grammar and language. Um, my question is: Is are they compatible? Um, and i I ask that because today I'm finding I quite often find the language of politics too caught up in kind of cultural cultural wars, attitudes and rhetoric, and it kind of obstructs an openness that I think is needed for that initial approach to others who appear often to be speaking very different political language, but who may actually share some common ideas or assumptions, but 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 it's just not immediately obvious and secondly very quickly could, could, is it possible to, to leave problem. it
1: with just one okay is that is that all right we will come yes, back sure. a we do have time sure. thanks yeah. it's, 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 there's so many people to get in what I will do I, I want to get in this event obviously hosted in partnership with uh, Freiburg Institute in Germany so I do want to uh, artificially push uh, Sabina who of the Freiburg Institute to the top of the list Sabina I'll put you on spotlight um do you want to uh what were you what was your question
13: term uniqueness because frank mentioned that our response to this crisis is unique so the phenomenon obviously isn't unique and um, susan picked up on that and kind of mentioned it was the interconnectedness of our world and i'm kind of i can't get to grips with that quite so well because is it really just the interconnectedness in terms of globalism global uh the, the global economy or is there another perhaps uh, more in, more ideal, idealistic interconnectedness that we are that we pretty much all followed the path of Wuhan, which wasn't exactly you know, the most democratic example, not exactly a liberal enlightened example. Um, and that's something I'm just trying to, to get to grips with. Is there perhaps, um, are we missing somebody taking the lead in an enlightened liberal way? Uh, you know, what, uh, maybe linking back to the question of the authoritarian responses, what would she say to that?
1: Great, thanks, uh, Sabina. Good to draw attention to the international dimension of that, given this is obviously an international conversation, so thank you. Okay, I'm going to get Jenny Cunningham and then I'm going to come back for what will have to be very quick uh, remarks from our panel, but uh, Jenny, uh, over to you.
14: I just wanted to raise the question of science and medicine during this whole uh, pandemic. There seems to be a real paradox in relation to the sort of authority of science and medicine um, during the pandemic, because if you look over on the one hand, over the last two or three decades, there's been marked skepticism um, about scientific and medical knowledge, um, or their ability, in fact, to, to solve problems. You only have to think of the hostility to nuclear power, or genetic uh, manipulation, even ironically to immunizations. Um, And yet in the COVID pandemic, there seems to be almost an elevation uh, of respect for this science, um, an absolute adoration of the NHS, um, and of course, um, great respect for the vaccine hunters. and there just seems to be a bit of a paradox there, although I think we have to remind ourselves that science is very welcome when it justifies a lockdown, and also it of course is very welcome when it reinforces the ap- apocalyptic um, uh, climate change scenarios. Mm. So it's, it seems to be in, in the context of sort of mesanthropic objectives science is elevated in this way but
1: great. not otherwise so, uh, great thanks so much jenny okay i'm gonna come back in i'm gonna go to susan um in just a second just noting from the chat there's a great conversation going on in the chat which is one of the nice things about uh, zoom we know where we can follow all of it but there is a bit of a theme of um this non-judged, supposed non judgmentalism being remarkably uh, judgmental in its own way, and that coming through in people who break the lockdown or who go out and protest or what, whatever it may be. But and there's, as I say, too much to keep up with there, and certainly too much for Susan to uh, cover it all. But um, just a quick thought from you, Susan.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to pick out a couple of um, things to remark on. The last, it was Jenny who made the last remark about misanthropy. I I can't see for the life of me why caring about the planet, which is the basis of our and our children and our children's children's lives, could possibly be misanthropic. And frankly, um, I fly too much or used to fly too much. Um, I, you know, we all eat too much meat. I mean, um, you you know, The planet is the basis of every human value um, we want to get on. Um, Here's the question, uh, whether politics is compatible with morality. Yes, absolutely. Um, My book, Moral Clarity, which was mentioned before, is is all about that. And when I say we need political solutions, um, I, I mean we need, well, one thing I think politics needs to do is return to the language of morality, but not as a you know, cover-up, uh, as a genuine commitment to, to certain moral claims. And things like putting pressure on business. I mean, we do all know that we live in a world in which individual governments are less powerful than global corporations. So putting pressure um, on our representatives uh, to put pressure on business. Uh, boycotts, those kinds of things, I think could be enormously effective and haven't been used enough. Uh, Somebody asked me to explain what's going on in the U.S. right now, sorry. Um, (laughs) I actually spent the last five days trying to do that, but most of it's in German. Um, My book, Learning from the Germans, does actually talk about this, but it's not a case of collective guilt or all white people are guilty. Um, All white people... Do, at least in the United States, need to take a responsibility, uh, which is not the same as guilt, um, for the systemic racism that has led to these kinds of actions. And finally, somebody said they were disturbed. Uh, they didn't like the connotation of the distinction between essential worker and non essential worker. Gosh, I mean, I have no way of knowing how, uh, you know. Th- what the 161 participants here do for a living, but I bet there are not too many uh, grocery cashiers or Amazon carriers among you. Um, it's interesting, I live in Berlin, so, so Germany managed to come up with a word which was convoluted and bureaucratic and doesn't sound so um, harsh as essential worker, uh, relevant to the system. It's one of these obfuscatory words. Um, It was terribly disturbing to my ego to realize that nothing would change in the world if I stayed home for months. Um, But the world would not continue to go on if cashiers, deliverers, uh, etc., etc., didn't go out to work. Yeah, it's a blow to those of us who have professions that allow us to work from home um are less essential than others but i actually think that's a blow we need to uh take on the chin and acknowledge it and do something about the disparity between the pay and the status (coughs) safety of essential and non-essential workers
1: thanks susan uh over to frank (coughs) again
2: unfortunately uh my zoom doesn't work properly so i cannot see the chat i can see you Um, on the question of uh, the paradox that uh, Jenny raised about science, <coughs> I would make the point that the uh, skepticism towards science that, that's very profound and it's, and the reliance on it are all founded on the same phenomenon, which is if you look at the skepticism of science, it's often fueled by a very powerful anti-enlightenment sense that you know we are too arrogant, we play we're trying to be prometheus, you know, we're uh, too arrogant in terms of what we've done with technology, and therefore science needs to be restrained, we need to be much more modest, Uh, we don't know as much as we think we do, and it's it's a kind of, um, almost a kind of uh, uh, fundamental questioning about the value of knowledge itself, and very often you hear people particularly in the Green Movement, almost saying that science creates as much problems as it solves, that knowledge itself, uh, in a sense, and the promotion and the pursuit of knowledge, is a mixed blessing. So you have on the one hand that skepticism, which has been very powerful uh, in the way that science has uh, evolved in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but that, that kind of ideal is ultimately based on a very... Uh, sort of limited sense of what a human being is. It's it kind of, it's a very pessimistic notion of what humans do with, the, uh, with, with their own creative powers. Uh, and it emphasizes that kind of negative dystopian, Faustian kind of sentiment, which has always been part of Western culture, but in some parts of Europe, particularly in Northern Europe, has become relatively powerful in recent decades. But the same kind of powerlessness that leads to skepticism about science Is also the same kind of powerlessness that makes people ever so reliant on science, to the point at which they talk about the science, as if there is such a thing. Because the the science uh, assumes that it's like a a religion, where there's a religious knowledge that we must embrace, rather than the fact that science is about debating, about arguing. It's about having different points of view. It's about uh, testing out the evidence. But both the reliance on the science, both by politicians and individuals, and the skepticism are founded upon a notion of personhood, which has kicked in over the last 30 or 40 years, which basically regards the the human being as not really as trustworthy as as they ought to be, which is why I like Sweden. One of the things I like about Sweden is that for all its sins, it's a relatively high trust society. It's a kind of a place where people trust each other a lot more than they do in many other parts of Europe, and because it's a high trust society, and because you know that people will do the right thing, or at least you assume that they will do the right thing, you could have a strategy uh, being adopted towards the pandemic, which outwardly seems senseless, outwardly seems kind of callous. Look how horrible they are to all the old people that are dying, but is a genuine attempt to find some kind of a way of dealing with a a threat to our health that's gonna be here for a very, very long time to come, Uh, an attempt to, to, to learn to accommodate to that. And the one thing that I've learned from my study of disasters is that the best solutions to disasters, to catastrophes, are always local. It's always people in the local areas who stand up and are the ones to be counted. We've seen research in Texas, in Kansas, where when a disaster occurs, the sheriff or the mayor becomes so scared that they run home to look after their family and they give up on their official positions. But there are other people who step up and these are the natural community leaders who organically emerge in the face of adversity. And I think that if we had learned in this particular pandemic to rely a lot more on the would-be leaders, rather than forcing people to always be at home, rather than having a kind of top-down messaging all the time, rather than saying, well, you people in Kent, you can decide for yourself what is in the best interest of the people in Kent, what is the best, most effective way of dealing with the pandemic. If we had done that, then I'm sure that we would have both mobilized the human spirit, but also it would have probably been more effective in containing the threat to our health that has kicked in.
1: Okay. Thanks for that, uh, Frank and Susan. I'm going to try and run through as many people as I can. Now, firstly in the queue is Frankie. So, uh...
15: Cool. Um, I just wanted to um, bring up this point about uh, masks and to a certain extent in the UK clapping, because there was a lot of discussion about how people have a moral framework, but they're too embarrassed in order to talk about it or too embarrassed in order to kind of go against people in an aggressive manner about it. But masks, particularly from following my, my family in upstate New York, have become a real emotional cut through and people really choose it as the hill that they're going to die on. And I've seen it In this country to a certain extent about clapping but on both sides so some you know as a healthcare worker you will go out to work regardless as if someone claps you or not you know that that's how it works but on on both sides is those who feel that the clapping is extremely fundamental and very important and also on those who say well we're being oppressed because um i should be too i i'm not clapping and then therefore i'm being judged strongly because I'm not clapping You think are you fragile on both those sides of the equation that this is a sign of oppression that you're um that you're that this is the hill that you choose to die on I'm just interested in in that
16: thanks
1: Frankie over to uh, Cronin
16: um I had a question about um the culture war um I I don't share Susan's optimism or apparent optimism about the uh, way in which coronavirus will change morality. In fact, if anything, just in relation to the question of clapping, um, this the whole "You Clap for Me Now" um, uh, scandal that blew up. There was a short film made by uh, Bang doctors and medical staff, um, actually criticizing people um, for or calling out people for their perceived racism uh, in the "You Clap for Me Now" thing, and. Is there is there any way in which um, we're, we're just going to see a return to the culture war? And if anything, um, the, uh, the pandemic has actually reinforced um, uh, the culture war. And thinking about the events in London and certainly in, in uh, the United States in the last week or so, hasn't the culture war and identity politics just reasserted itself? It's actually shown us that nothing's really changed. This is the real division. I mean, the mm-hmm. pandemic is... Is a passing phenomena, and our divisions are back, and they're as real as ever, and as po- possibly even more potent.
1: Thanks. Uh, over to uh, over to Carlton.
17: Sure. Hi. Uh, it's it's kind of I just it's a question very quickly on on the culture wars in the sense that has the culture wars not ended lockdown restrictions, given that the kind of the, the mass protests for Black Lives Matter. Uh, across America and the USA seem to have just ripped up the, the kind of lockdown rule books. So I was quite interested in some of your comments, Susan, you talked about you were unable to find kind of solidarity with the kind of people wanting to free themselves from lockdown because they were at the wrong side of the political fence. So I just wondered what your thoughts are on uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, which do seem to kind of just make a mockery of of, of lockdown. It kind of rips the rule book right up and suggests that everything's fine and we should be allowed out of our houses and back to work.
1: Thanks for that. I'm going to go to John. Uh,
17: oh, hi there. Um,
1: yeah, just a, a quick one here. Um, perhaps a little bit more on
11: this uh, sort of apparent syndrome whereby uh, many individuals seem to become totally fixated on the uh, detail of the rules, you know, whether they can meet up in groups of six, seven or eight, whether they're allowed to drive three or ten miles or whatever it is, rather than uh, grasping the uh, fundamental facts around the actual risk and judging this
9: for themselves.
1: That was me. Thank you. Thanks. A real model of uh, brevity there, which we're going to need a lot more of to get through the people here. I'm going over to Alex C now.
9: Uh, Susan, I hope this is not too cheeky, but um, in work, your work outside of this forum in particular, you've talked about the need for the left to reclaim the discussion around uh, morality. And I would hope that both of you might be able to mention or talk about this. I find this a difficult question because in the work that I do, all I see is discussion by the left about morality. So that's just a... Is this just uh, uh, culture, uh, design, um, in particular, um, ethical design? Um, and I wonder, um, is it a simple matter of making a distinction between uh, morality pose versus morality as you're discussing it? Great, thanks. I'm going to go over to uh, Boris now.
18: I think, uh, yes, we should we should ask what... Uh, what is morality? Uh, for me, as a, a psychologist, psychology studies morality in uh, always in dilemmatic situations, in situations in which there is no good decision, but every decision is bad. Every decision, uh, and if, uh, this is uh, the real uh, situation in which we live. If I save uh, life of, of one uh, individual, I lose time to save uh, life for another individual. And if we uh, want to, to learn something from, from this corona crisis, uh, some, uh, th- this is a moral lesson for, for, uh, from my point of view. Uh, that we, ha- we, we should have both sides, we should recognize both sides. A very simple example, a very small example. Uh, many uh, companies uh, which make um, masks, they also make uh, nets uh, to protect from from malaria. So the more masks they make, the less uh, nets. So it it is already calculated how many people will um, die on malaria this year just because Companies that should uh, make nets for them, they they make masks. Everything we we should okay. We we, we need masks. I don't I don't um, ask this question. How 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 um, useful are masks? But if we we need masks, we should recognize we're safe. Something we save maybe human lives with masks, we lose uh, human uh, lives uh, with um, on on the other side of this is is the same uh, problem. Thank you very much, uh, Boris. Thanks Okay, I'm I'm gonna excuse me. The the opposite, the opposite position is uh, what uh, is traditional in in Christianity, what is uh, called. the, the, the moralism, uh, which we, we already know, this is good, this is bad. Uh, if you do this, you are good, you, get, you go to the heaven, if you do this, the, you, 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 you are bad, you go to the, the, to the hell. The, uh, this, is, uh, this moralism is exactly the opposite. Uh, to the real um, moral decision, to the real mor- moral choice, in which we, we, we have to, to, to choose between bad and bad. Not between good and bad. We always choose between bad and bad. Okay, Th-
19: thanks a lot, uh, Boris. Okay, I'm going to go over to Mark. Um... Right, so if I have to go back a little bit, I've been in the queue long. Uh, I think it was a statement by Frank who said that we are no longer allowed to make moral judgments. Uh, I think it's quite the opposite. I think uh, we only talk in terms of morality. I mean, uh, here in Berlin, uh, the churches have banners that say that uh, white man populism uh, is bad for your soul. Uh, Veganism, the whole uh, question about food is that what you eat, what you do not eat actually makes you a a moral being. The refugee crisis has been entirely talked about uh, in terms of moral obligation and, and morality. Uh, poverty uh, from the other side uh, is being talked about in terms of if human beings are lazy or not lazy uh, and actually responsible for their own situation. So uh, I would claim um, that we talk about issues that are conflicts of distributions entirely in a in a language of morality. And if anything, there's much too much of it. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, uh, Mark. Um, I'll,
1: I'll bring in the panel for some quick points. I hope everyone can see there's about... Six people left, or so. So um, I'll I will bring the panel. Susan, I'll, I'll I'll bring you in because I know you did have to go. As, you, as I say, there's six people. If you want to wait out to the end, that'd be appreciated. But if you need to go, then. Um. um
0: so look. Um. Uh, who is it who just spoke from uh, Berlin? Mark. Uh, yeah, Mark. Hi. Um. Uh, there's a particular German allergy to the language of morality, and um, I. Uh, yes, I. I understand that you're. Uh, you know the points that you made about individual political questions sometimes moral language is used but often it's precisely what shall i say progressive intellectuals who reject the language of morality i've had a lot of experience uh with that um someone wrote in the chat i haven't been able to read everything but Um, Somebody said it was sad that a public intellectual feels non-essential. Obviously, people are feeling really, really upset that they're being called non-essential. Look, I think that education and books are important. Uh, Otherwise, I wouldn't have devoted my life to them. But uh, I think that we, those of us who do that, have been um, really suppressing the degree to which the people on whom our lives depend have been undervalued in in so many ways. And uh, I think we have to face that. Um, Somebody said they didn't share my optimism. Hey, I'm not an optimist. And I said at the beginning when I was asking people to think big, this is not a prediction. Uh, Philosophy doesn't do predictions. Philosophy can give you possibilities. If thinking big big, um, in a state of total uncertainty could allow us to turn towards the better alternative when we have no idea which way it's going to go. It could all go to hell. There's no question about it, right? But if you think about it, even the fact that the you know the Great Depression uh, in Germany, it kind of sealed the nail in the coffin uh, on fascism. In the United States, it produced the closest thing to a social democracy we ever had. So um, you know, even though we know we're going through an economic Uh, crisis. Uh, It could go both ways, and I feel a moral obligation to be hopeful, that is not optimistic, but hopeful, Um, if that hope could help me contribute to its going in the better way. Uh, Identity politics in the United States, Black Lives Matter making mockery of a lockdown, absolutely not. Um, people are quite aware of the risks that they're taking. It's been moving to see people um, go to these demonstrations, wearing masks, um, you know, bringing uh, things that will help against tear gas. And if you look at those, uh, at those crowds, There are at least as many white people as black people. This is not about identity politics. It's about fundamental injustice in the system. Somebody wrote in the chat wasn't, uh, you know, if I talk about the system, am I not letting off the officer for his own individual moral responsibility? Not at all. Uh, Of course, that officer was morally responsible. The problem is that so many officers uh, have done the same thing in the past years. And I was just listening to a report today of five structural reasons why policemen um, are not brought to justice uh, or not even, uh, you know, fired when they commit acts of violence. That's how the police system is... Uh, is set up but there has been just one more sentence there has been more responsibility the most moving pictures that i have been watching as i've been um almost stuck to the screen for the last days are white and black policemen kneeling in solidarity with the protesters um you know uh and it's, it's a very powerful site. This is this is really not about white versus black. Uh, it's about truth versus lies and justice versus injustice.
1: Great, thanks, Susan. Okay, gonna head over to Frank. Um, m- m- maybe a quick thought from you and then we'll collect some more hands.
2: Right. Uh, well, just first of all, the, the point that Mark was making, I think uh, you are right to draw attention to the fact that there's a lot of uh, a lot of use of a moral vocabulary uh, to talk about relatively mundane, banal phenomenon. Uh, But uh, this is not really about moral judgments being made, nor is it about using the the grammar of morality. This is what I call moralizing. I think what what you're describing are examples of moralizing. And moralizing, basically, in the 21st century means that you take relatively trivial issues or really uh, sort of through pheno- phenomenon, and you endow them with moral meaning. I think veganism that you mentioned is a very, very good example, where you basically take a piece of meat and you endow it with the quality of evilness. This is an evil kind of a food. And where you have this kind of, uh, sort of almost like a, a, a kind of a narcissistic uh, impulse to basically a, a sort of use the language of, morality in a a very kind of moralizing way, as a way of uh, somehow uh, sort of uh, justifying the the kind of statements that you are making. And I think it's important that we don't confuse moralizing with morality. They often are, are seen as being the same, whereas in fact, whenever a moralizing impulse kicks in, as it does now, it's always a sign of moral illiteracy. I mean, a very good example that Frankie was raising was the mask you know, because uh, it is very interesting that a mask, which is just a piece of cloth, has assumed this kind of uh, kind of moral quality in the eyes of some people, where the wearing of masks uh, signals a particular kind of quality about life, a particular outlook. It's a statement about who you are. I'm the kind of person that wears a mask, unlike these other people who are morally inferior because they don't care. They're not Uh, interested in the welfare of other people. And on the other side, you have people saying, those people who wear masks are giving up on their freedoms. They don't take liberty seriously. They are cowards or or moral cowards. And instead of just saying, well, I wear a mask because I think it makes sense. And and somebody else saying, I don't wear a mask because I don't think it makes sense. Instead of just leaving at that and allowing people to decide what is appropriate to their circumstances, what kind of lifestyle choices they make, that is endowed with moral quality. It's important for us to often take a reality check. You know, if you go back to the example of clapping, everything depends on context. So I'm, I find clapping to be a, a top-down uh, example of moralizing. At the same time, I'm not against clapping. If people want to clap, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. So uh, to, to be really honest, you know, sort of, uh, I go out almost every week and clap. And the reason why I clap isn't because I'm, I'm demonstrating a, any kind of moral uh, sort, of, uh, sort of virtues or making a statement. The reason why I clap is because, you know, I can see my neighbors for the first time in weeks. And it's really nice to see that on my street, all these people that I know really well, we, we kind of smile at each other as we clap. And in the course of doing that, I think everybody in the street forgets about the NHS workers. It's got nothing to do with the NHS. Everybody's clapping because it's a way of, of our street demonstrating that we're one. We're kind of getting together. It's a way of showing an element of solidarity. And it seems to me that when you do that, you know, so that, that is all right. That, that is really quite a, quite a good thing. I'm not sure if I agree with uh, uh, Susan about the, the last statement she made. Uh, because I find kneeling is a kind of act of self-abasement, which as a secular person, I find not a little bit repulsive uh, in the way in which uh, a lot of white people in the United States have not taken to, you know, sort of uh, uh, going on their knee and, and kind of atoning for their sins. It, it really reminds me, I don't know if any of you watched the Game of Thrones, there's that very interesting scene where Cersei does the walk of shame where she literally takes her clothes off. And she's forced to do that by these religious fanatics. And she is trying to atone for what she is. And that's the scene from Game of Thrones went through my mind when I see these white dudes in the United States all of a sudden saying, you know, with me, you know, I am scum. I am, you know, to me, that's not solidarity uh, in the way that I understand it. It's got to do with this very kind of passive way of acquiescing to the moment where you you know by basically saying you're guilty what you're saying is that somehow who you are um, is, is is kind of uh, influenced and, and shaped by this original sin or whiteness that you suffer from, and you the only role the possible that you can have is to relieve yourself of the burden of that sin by getting on your knees and I think uh, one of the things that we learned from the Enlightenment is that we get off of our knees as human beings we take matters into our own hands and we show solidarity by our active uh, sort of side by our, our active side rather than crawling on the floor
1: great thanks frank I'm, i know some people uh, have to uh, leave now so if if you do that's that's fine i uh, thank you for joining us do head to academyofideas.org.uk slash events to find out more about us from the future i'm sure we'll be doing something um, about these about the protests in, in the States in the near future. I'm, I'm sure me and my colleagues will get something on and also do head to academyofideas.org.uk slash donate as well if you wanna uh, give us uh, the price of a pint or something to say thank you for uh, the, the work that we're doing. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll carry on, as I say, if you have to jump out, uh, do do feel free to, but I wanna see if we can get everyone in. I'll, I'll keep this going as, as, as long as we've got contributions. The last person I'm gonna get in now is uh, uh, Teresa, uh, who's at the end there, but first off we'll go over to uh, Jan,
0: I'm afraid I am going to have to leave. I have other commitments tonight. Um, but uh, thanks very much for all the interesting comments that I did not have time to respond to in any depth that they deserved. Thank
1: no, you. That, that, thank you so much, uh, Susan. I'm sure I speak for everyone saying thank. Uh, what enlightening contributions! We're really uh, delighted to be able to put this conversation on. Um, we'll, we'll uh, hope, hope to speak to you again at some
2: point in the future. But nice talking to you. you.
0: Uh, Yeah, same here, Frank. And I I did just type in a couple of remarks to your kneeling remarks. But I'll just say, I think political statements are contextual. And in the American political context, it's a gesture that works. Uh, I don't think the uh, Enlightenment was militantly anti-religious either. But that's another story. Good night. Thank you all. It's been an interesting conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Susan. OK, over to uh, Jan.
12: OK. First, um, are there any aspects of this disaster where legitimate moral, moral questions or issues can be developed? So given that we're talking about life, death, freedom, fairness, solidarity, surely those are the very things around which you would... I want to develop a moral vocabulary or some kind of moral thinking so surely this moment is not one where we try to distance ourselves from moralizing but trying to clarify where moral questions might arise and maybe that's where you're heading to with your question with your point about morality so then my other question to that is then is the problem that we have an absence of moral content to politics or that we have an absence of political content to politics
17: Thanks, Jan. Um, over to Johnny. Um, yeah, uh, just very quickly, I agree um, with um, I think it was Matt who was talking about the fact that we do seem to have an awful lot of morality kicking around the place. Um, Frank, you, you were saying that there's a distinction between uh, morality uh, and uh, moralizing. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you'd know how that distinction could be made. Uh, you talked to the you an example of veganism, but I you know if I list all the big major religions of the world. Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Muslims, they, they all put tokens against food that you can and cannot eat. So um, is is if that if that's the only measure, I mean what, what measure is there so I can spot the difference between moralising and being a proper moralist?
1: Great, thanks. So it's been a big theme in the chat as well, is really uh, hammering out this distinction between morality and moralism and judgment and judgmentalism, so it'd be, it'd be great to hear Frank's thoughts on that. Um, okay, as someone who's called Jagdish.
7: Yeah, hi. Uh, quite a few things uh, people have already asked, so I'm just going to run through a few bullet points very quickly because I know you're short of time and uh, and other people may want to say things. Um, I don't know how we can make a lot of judgment because since the virus is uh, come in, since the lockdown, it seems like uh, you know everything's got quite atomized, so we're basically pretty much looks like we're kind of making some kind of guesses as to what's going on but I'm from a an individual point of view I think it's it's staggering the the change in the role of the state so on one level by it, it seems like the role of the state has become quite weak, but because there's no other actor on the scene uh, the state seems to be able to dictate quite a lot of, uh, you know, play a major role in uh, in how, how people are responding to things. I'm also struck by the degree of compliance, which is phenomenal compliance. There's hardly any kind of uh, people dissenting in any kind of large numbers uh, from it. I mean, even religious institutions, like I, I live in an area where there are two or three mosques which are or, oh, you know, during Ramadan and certainly on Fridays are flooded with people. Nobody there at all. Uh, so even even the belief in the God he seems to have taken a back seat. So it's quite, I think the, some of the impact of this is still going to come out in the wash uh, because it's quite staggering the degree to which uh, it has had an impact. Plus the impact on a lot of young people and how they view their interests as being separate from people, the old uh, wrinklies and the old people, maybe like myself and so on. The way a lot of employers seem to be taking this opportunity to kind of push back against workers' rights and to kind of do a lot of spring cleaning, especially international solidarity, which seems to have pretty much taken such a back seat that some states are very happy doing a bit of spring cleaning and getting uh, and changing things that they probably would have not been able to change so readily at other times. So I think all of those kind of things are quite amazing. It's like everybody's home and the people out there, the things are going on out there, but none of us are aware and we're just having to, we'll have to wait and see how it comes out in the wash. Uh, But it's it's the degree of compliance and the absence of people kind of saying, actually I can understand how people can get the virus and how we can stop transmitting it. So therefore I'm gonna go and do everything and live as normally as possible and ignore uh, the impact of uh, being told daily through press briefings and otherwise that you're potentially gonna be killing everybody if you go out.
1: Anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Thank you very much, uh, Jack. Just uh, put, put your finger on there, something about the use of events as a moral cover for a kind of judgmentalism. Thank you for that. Okay, I'm gonna go over to uh, Maren and or uh, Alex. I'm not sure which one of you are both, but uh, delighted to hear from you regardless. Over to so you. Yeah, uh,
20: no, Alex is in the corner, I'm going to talk. <laughs> um, no, just a quick question. I love this talk about morality. And as a German, I probably share what, what uh, Marx's allergy to to morality as such. Um, because, I don't know, it's hard work or so. But um, I always thought morality is something that you can only execute or do with, through agency and the embrace of your own human agency. And now I assume for this weird paradox where people reject their own human agency, but they have an Massive need to be good to act morally and you and then this kind of thing happens where morality morality or moral exercise Becomes performative rather than through one's own agency and security and one's own moral rigor So people constantly feel their own lack of agency and constantly have to perform morality, you know through um, Social media through virtue signaling through visual um, you know, accoutrements like masks and so on, constantly talking about and uh, berating other people about it. So the idea of morality as lifestyle seems to be quite something that has happened before, but has been exacerbated by the current crisis. So I was, well, have we got anything about about this? So that's my question. Ooh,
1: thanks, Marin. Um Okay, have we got two more people to get in? Then we'll um, we'll, we'll have some final thoughts from Frank. So. Uh, next person is uh, Road Ravstar.
19: Hi, it's Ravi. Um, the I think one of the things that's interesting about this talk is that in relation to the pandemic, it's been quite abstract because, of the pandemic and the responses that people have been asked to um, or have been encouraged to um, observe, it's it is it's been in relation to the particular character of, of this infection. So you've got something that, a disease that is highly infectious and deadly to a minority of people that um, catch it. The whole thing about asymptomatic carrying and the fact that it is transmitted through water drops means that face masks are a way of not infecting other people because if you've got a barrier that stops moisture coming out, then if you sneeze or cough, then you're less likely to pass it on to somebody else. the whole discussion about masks was entirely abstract. There was no sense in which is it an appropriate measure to slow the spread of a disease, and that that question as to whether it's effective as a measure to slow it down has to be factored in in terms of the moral significance of wearing or not, because a, a moral decision isn't necessarily just a private individual matter. There is a, a public morality in terms of what safeguards public welfare. And in that sense, asking people to observe the lockdown or to wear masks, it's, it can't be left to the individuals to square it with their own conscience because if, if people do that and they are infectious, then it doesn't impact on just them. And finally, just on the, the, the thing that Frank was talking about with taking a knee, again, the taking a knee protest emerges in the States with like particularly black athletes Colin Kaepernick started it and it was a way of protesting police violence when everyone else was standing up for the national anthem. They they took a knee and that was seen as disrespectful but they were trying to do it in a way that wasn't disruptive but people would notice it. And that's the origins of it and now people are using it when the cops come at them so that they don't appear as a threat because if you're down on your knee Apparently, it is supposed to be a sign that, look, I'm not a threat to you, you've got no reason to come at me with or violence, and that's what it represents. I mean, it's a form of Gandhi's, like, non-violent kind of protest, and even though I'm not a Gandhi fan, that is its significance. It is not about submission or anything else, it's about showing you're not a threat in the face of the police and demonstrating in a peaceful way as to wanting to see racial justice in America.
1: Great. Thanks, Ravi. Um, Okay, I I think the final point will be, uh, Teresa. Uh,
21: I'd like to go back to something that Claire mentioned and Frank as well, and to name check Claire that she gave a long talk on at the RI many years ago, and that's trust. Because I don't see trust as necessarily being a virtue. I think it can be a vice as well, if you're trusting the untrustworthy. And I find it interesting to see the way... Um, things have played out in different countries according to the trustworthiness of governments. And there seem to be governments of very different sorts, whether they're democracies or not, which have either historically earned the trust of their citizens or have been in the process of earning it through the pandemic. And um, I think this country has done particularly badly. Um, And I think we've overtaken Italy, we've just overtaken Spain with our rate of death as opposed to the absolute numbers. And I think rate of death is a better reflection that um, corresponds to the size of a population. Um, We're only behind Belgium now, I think, and I think Belgium has been reporting much more honestly than we have. So um, I would like you know, some thoughts on the importance of earning trust. And, and by the way, I, you may know, Frank, that I think the reason that things have not played out worse in Sweden, given that they had looser lockdown measures, is that Sweden has apparently the highest rate of single occupancy households in the world. And also I think the highest rate of people working from home before the pandemic. So this was an economy that was not so dependent on people being in particular workplaces. Um, Having said which, there have been hideous things going on in Sweden in care homes about which, um, you know, absolutely hideous, immoral things where people have been deprived of oxygen, which could have kept them alive just because there was no doctor present to sign them off. And also in the age of so much, you know, peak equalities legislation and so on, it's been interesting to see how different groups have been marginalized and in some ways trivialized. So the elderly, um, even though the majority of deaths have been in people over 65, it is only for people over 90 that you actually have a life expectation as low as 18 months. So according to what The economists and similar publications have calculated, the average loss of life is apparently about 11 years. Um, and for some people it's obviously been decades. Um, it's been interesting to see how the disabled have been marginalised and have been living in dread. And there have been some very distressing interviews I've seen with doctors who um, have been not, in this country, who have not been allowed to give ventilation to people they wanted to give ventilation to because they didn't tick the right boxes. Mm -hmm. And just one more point. It's been interesting to see, again, in the age of equality legislation, that the group, the identity group, or the ethnic group that seem to have suffered the highest number of deaths in this country are Jews. And it doesn't seem to be mentioned.
1: Uh, Thanks, Teresa. Okay, there's there's a huge amount um, going on, not least about some of these debates that are emerging about the science and what works and what doesn't. And I think for the purposes of tonight, we might have to box off some of the, discussion about the uh, what's going on in the United States and the protests that are, s- are slowly going around the world as well, and maybe uh, try and sum up on some of these issues of judgmentalism and ju- and judgment and moral morality and moralism. But uh, even that would be too much in some short uh, moments. But hopefully, Frank, you can uh, just reflect on the discussion uh, for the last couple of minutes.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you need to be a bit more balanced and certainly I take a different view than Therese on a lot of the points which I cannot go into. I mean, a lot of Jews have died principally because of the Hasidic community's reluctance to give up on their rituals, which you know I, I, you know, I have no, no problems with—that's a decision they made—but sadly and tragically, many of them paid a price for it. I know that in Israel, uh, similarly, the same phenomenon happened, where the Hasidic community was disproportionately hit by the pandemic compared to secular Jews. So I think there's a slightly different way of looking at it, but I, you know I haven't got time to go into that. I would, you know, I would just make the point that. Uh, by my, my trust, I don't mean trusting government. I mean trusting one another. I think that's what it's uh, ultimately about. It's being able to uh, sort of be open to you, your neighbors, the people you work with, and your community. On on the point that Ravi made about uh, you know on being on your knee, I think there's a different context because I think it's one thing to be on your knee uh, when you're uh, when it originated as a form of protest, and we can have a discussion about it's right and wrong. It's quite another thing now when it's not, you know, going on your knee isn't simply done in protest and demonstrations, but you literally have in many parts of the United States, large groups of whites almost organizing these religious kind of uh, rituals and uh, ritual and, and, and assemblies where the going, uh, going on your knee becomes this kind of uh, gesture, not simply of solidarity, but what I see as being a kind of uh, penitence that that you know, that it's not it's not about protest. It's about basically saying that we are uh, not you know we want to get rid of our originals and we want to become uh, good people and this is the way that we're going about it. Um, the question that Jan raised about moral and po- morality and politics is is something uh, that's very very difficult to answer because the two are so intertwined and I think. One of the things that we learn, for example, from the writings of Hannah Arendt, is that when politics is emptied of meaning, so is morality. I mean, the two go hand in hand. And when when you basically lack a language through which you're able to give meaning to right and wrong, in politics, you will hide behind the evidence. You will hide behind technical arguments. And in morality, you will will, will adopt a kind of very narrow form of utilitarian ethics, where you get involved in thought experiments, and you you basically uh, avoid the foundational issues. The best way of understanding the distinction between morality and moralism is that when we're uh, talking about uh, morality in the normative sense, we're talking about a a code of conduct or a web of meaning uh, which is broadly acceptable to society, which is the foundation on which judgments are made. Uh, so that, for example, uh, uh, somebody early on gave the example of every religion having food taboos, not just, the, not, not just vegans, but well, the Jews and Muslims and Hindus might have all kinds of food taboos, but at the same time that's associated and that's linked out of a, a number of other ideals uh, that are part of this web of ideas, web of meaning, that constitutes a religion. That's very different when you basically, out of the blue, you begin to, you know, sort of uh, pathologize fast food, McDonald hamburgers, that they're not just simply bad for your health, but somehow they're also, uh, you know, really, really horrible for you. And I think that kind of distinction between moralizing and and moralism uh, does become really sort of quite important. And uh, it seems to me that yes, we are making judgments all the time, you know, uh, even though we're meant to be non-judgmental. So human beings. Couldn't survive without making that kind of judgment, but it's not a judgment that uh, allows us to have a, a, a sensibility and, and an adult discussion about what is good in our society. What is it that we're trying to achieve? What what are the the norms that we need to live by? What are the norms that we want to want to kind of transmit to young people? You know, what are the norms that we want to develop and 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 and, and take forward in the future? And I I don't think that morality is the last word in this, but it seems to me that the two politics and morality needs to be exist in some kind of relationship uh, with one another uh, for the very very simple reason that unless we know what is good and what is bad or have some kind of approximate sensibility about it, we're going to end up uh, basically uh, giving up on our ability to give direction to society towards some kind of a future And we're certainly going to like the resources, the intellectual and the moral resources that are needed to create a bridge between the pandemic that we're in now and the world that we would like to create uh, in the years ahead.
1: Great. Thank you so much, uh, Frank, for that. Um, That was really wonderful. I wish we could have done the same for Susan, but sort of virtual from a distance uh, clapping of the good kind, not the the, uh, virtue signaling kind to you. Uh, check us out at academyofideas.org.uk. You can add a forward slash newsletter if you want to join our newsletter. You can add a forward slash uh, events if you want to see our latest events. And for us, most importantly, you can add a forward slash donate if you want to show your appreciation and sh- show your appreciation and help us out as we continue to try and get to grips with these issues of our time through a uh, public uh, debate, which we've been trying to do throughout the lockdown and won't stop doing anytime soon. So do help us to do that. I, I hope we'll see some of you soon.
0: go, I'd like to ask you to think about making a donation to the Academy of Ideas. We've not been furloughed, and we haven't stopped. In fact, with salons and forums and public meetings online, we're busier than ever and delighted to be. But the current lockdown has almost completely stopped our income. So if you're a fan of what we do, we're counting on your support. Click the link below this podcast to donate what you can, and stay tuned for more debate and discussion
15: from the Academy of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts.